0: I am Patrick Eos, National President of Fraternal Order Police. This is the Blue View. Well, Keith, you're certainly no stranger to the Blue View podcast, or anyone in the leadership circles uh, in a Fraternal Order Police because of your role for, for years. Um, but for those that might be tuning in for the first time, uh, tell them a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Keith Turney, the National Sergeant at Arms with the Fraternal Order of Police. I started my career in law enforcement oh, probably 40 some odd years ago as a patrolman in the city of Joliet, worked my way up to union president there. I was the president of the union for quite some time, um, worked my way into management, sergeant, lieutenant. I was active in labor even at that point until uh, I became a, an exempt um, uh, rank of a commander, which uh, I finished my last 10 years in Joliet as a commander there. Uh, from there, I went to work for the uh, Illinois FOP Labor Council as a union representative. So I went right back to my roots in labor and uh, spent about 12 years there um, and then springboarded into the uh, office of uh, National Sergeant Arms with the FOP.
0: Yeah, Keith, uh, you, you have quite a few roles that you play on a national board. Uh, and I think you, a lot of people jokingly say that your middle name is Crytac or maybe it's your first name, because uh, Crytac is a big part of a, a, a program of which you are very much engaged in, um, and thank you for that. It's, uh, I know it's an, not an easy task, work intensive, and you do a great job with it, but your insight through, through Crytac showed you a trend quite a while back. You've been talking yeah. about the concerns of recruiting and retention uh, long before uh, many others kind of signal it. And, uh, you know, I do, you, you such great insight on it. I, I want to talk about recruiting and retention, um, mm-hmm. in this, in this particular, uh, episode, we have a crisis. There's no question we have a crisis. And I think every profession is struggling today because of COVID COVID has kind of rearranged the whole workforce. So every profession from restaurants to, to, you know, pretty much everyone trying to get people back into work, engaged in work is a shortage, uh, all the way around, um, that being said, law enforcement has a lot, a whole lot of other challenges uh, that are associated with it that are really created a major void in people stepping up and taking this job. You know, the best and brightest are stepping forward uh, and taking this job and being the next wave of law enforcement, but they're not doing it in numbers, which we need to do, which we need in order to sustain uh, the future of law enforcement. Um, so, with that, uh, I want to I want to talk about just recruiting and retention itself. Uh, you know, I, I'm a strong believer that when you talk about recruiting and retention, it really is all about retention. It starts and ends with retention. And if we're not able to fix that part, we're not able to fix the recruiting part of it. So I'm going to ask you to kind of dive into it and give me your thoughts on, on, you know, that, that, that whole assessment, uh, what I just laid out and, and your, what you see, what you forecasted, what you see through, through your involvement with these other groups, uh, and functions that, uh, that kind of give us an insight of where we are and how, how we're going to move past it.
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, this all, uh, my insight, you know, came, came to fruition, uh, through my work through Crytek with working with all the different law enforcement groups across the country and in triaging, um, you know, um, different problems that agencies were facing. So early on, you know, when this whole uh, anti-police movement um, kind of struck the country, you know, many of us, you know, even in leadership were telling officers, if you can leave, now's the time to go because it's getting bad out there. It's no longer, you could potentially lose your job, but you could potentially lose your livelihood because the dynamics were changing to such an extent that we were prosecuting. We were putting well-intentioned officers in jail for 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 doing their, their job. So, you know, we were encouraging people to leave, but what we didn't take into account was that there was no one to fill that void. We had always assumed that when pe- people left the profession, there was always that next generation that was just going to step up and move into the profession, and that didn't occur. And that's what I was seeing with my work through CryTech is these agencies were saying, "Look, we we've got two problems. One, everyone is leaving the profession, but secondly, we are having a very hard time getting people to join." And it, you know, it it took a uh, it, it it took a game change on on all of our parts, where um, we we you know we had a we had a stop. Uh, encouraging people to leave the profession because it was so bad, and really had to work with management, you know to to make the environment, you know better. Now, of course, uh, you know, public sentiment comes into play, wages come into play, benefits come into play. Um, and, you know we, and we've got a, of course, a, a young generation that are that's entering the workforce and they have options today that you know, were unavailable. Um, several generations ago, young people that are coming into the profession today can go anywhere. And when they look at law enforcement, they look at career in law enforcement, and they look at the wages, the benefits, um, what they see is, you know, they can go to work at Starbucks, uh, maybe make a little bit less money, but have a lot more freedom and not be in fear of, of losing their, their own freedom and in, in potentially going to prison over again, just simply doing their job.
0: Yeah, Keith, I want I want to come back and talk about some of those very issues that you bring up. because I think that there's a, there's a lot of dynamics here that are worth having having some meaningful discussion. And, and as a society, we need to have a meaningful discussion of the demand, demands we're placing on our law enforcement officer officers and the expectations of them doing that job as well. We'll come back to that. But I want to want to illustrate kind of where we are. Um, so. You know, the fraternal order police wanted to have a rank and file perspective on how we move forward with uh, recruiting and retention. And as you know, we uh, brought in about eighty leaders across the country, uh, from big lodges and small lodges, state lodges to local lodges, to talk about where we are, how we got here. Not so no, not so much how we got here, because I think we all know that. Focus our energy on pass forward, and what we see as a is a is a need uh, for law enforcement in general and and, in government to, to address, to, to figure out a path to move forward so we can fix this crisis, something that is not going, it didn't happen overnight. It's not going to be fixed overnight. We probably could be looking at a generation. I mean, you and I both know you take it, you take a law enforcement officer, you put them through the process and you hire them. That in itself takes too long by the time you find qualified candidates, they probably have moved on to somewhere else. It's not a very efficient model. We need to find ways to be able to speed these things up. But we also know when we bring someone in and we put them through the academy and then we put them, put them through FTO and then we get a little bit on job training, they're probably five plus years before they become a truly veteran effective officer. So even if we flipped the switch today and fixed our problems with recruiting and retention, um, we wouldn't get – it would be, it'd be at least five to 10 year cycle before we would see some meaningful change to that. So just to illustrate what a problem is, uh, before we did this, this uh, round table with these 80 leaders from across the country, we put together a survey and we asked these uh, 80 uh people not not all of them participated roughly about 50 agencies uh participated but this is the numbers they have of just 50. so it's not a scientific poll because it's not it's certainly not inclusive of all of america but if we're talking about 50 agencies in america um big and small are going to give these types of numbers it 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 is an indication of where we are in in a state of policing uh of that uh, it turns out that 18 percent are down the authorized force uh, agencies with more than 4,700 officers, nearly 2,800 uh, have as many as, as 2,800 are eligible for retirement. More than 1,200 left for different law enforcement agencies, and 704 left just because they went into more stable uh, employment. So you can see where our crisis is. We, you know, we we talk about a crisis today because we have a shortage of manpower. But you look at how many people are eligible to retire. If they just decided to pull a plug, where would we be as a in, in, in policing in America.
1: You know, you're right. And, and you know, that's why you know, we, we, the FOP, along with um, most other groups out there, are really uh, concentrating on making sure that the officers that are currently on the job you know, at least get those accolades and get that appreciation from all of us for sticking it out, you know, because we do know a lot of people had left the profession for various reasons. You know what's what's interesting, um, you know, you talk about how it's going to take five or six years for even a a, a new employee to kind of become seasoned in the profession. And so what what that is causing is many agencies um, offering the like signing bonuses, And they're stealing, they're cannibalizing uh, other police departments um, with enticing of the enticement of money to have seasoned officers come to their department to work. And, you know, that's a short term fix. And we know cannibalizing is
0: what it is. We're (laughs) cannibalizing, you know, uh, other agencies. But we're missing a key part here. Uh, You know, as, as I started off, we talked about what is the what is the key to recruiting and retention? Well, it starts and ends with retention. So if I'm a law enforcement officer and I'm loyal to the city that I'm serving in, and I choose not to leave and go into another profession, I choose not to take a signing bonus somewhere else, yet someone else comes in and they get, you know, a pretty nice signing bonus for coming along. Well, it really does come down to recruiting. Where is, where, where does it, that veteran officer who's committed to that agency, how do they feel like they're valued because of this, this practice?
1: No, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a very good point. And, and that is the problem we're seeing, you know, um, if the, the, uh, um, the New York times, I think, no, the Washington post just did a, um, a survey on the, the new employees coming into the workforce, young people, 23 to 27 years old. And although, um, Uh, the number, there's like two important factors that anyone looks at in getting a job. And one is, you know, being respected and having um, a good feeling about what they're doing in the, in the profession. And then secondly is wages, right? So uh, you make a very good point where you're, if you're going to attract officers from another agency, um, you know, with, 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 With financial incentives, what are you doing about what are you doing to the people that are there? You've got you've got it. If if you're going to invest money into a recruitment program, you have to invest the money in a retention program as well. the 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 more successful programs that we are seeing are the ones where, sure, maybe um, uh, maybe there's an incentive for for an officer to join the department, but there's an equal incentive for an officer who has been there to be rewarded for his um, staying, you know, staying the course as well. And what we're seeing, you know, at one time longevity programs were very popular in law enforcement and they've kind of fallen off, they've kind of fallen off in the most recent years, but longevity programs are very important as well. So let's say when an officer is at that 15 year mark, you know, there's a, there's a, a substantial bump in the salary as a reward for sticking it out for 15 years. And then at the 20-year level, there's another bump in salary, substantially a bump in salary, to, again, reward that person that's staying on the job. You know, the other dilemma that we're seeing across the country, and this this didn't happen overnight, but our pension systems have been – faltered you know over the years you know in many states and i think we and, and when we got our people together in dc we asked uh, you know how many agencies have um, multiple tier pension programs and i would say probably 75% of the people in that room raised their hands so what does that tell you if you're a, if if you're an, a senior officer your pension is 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 okay right But at these young people that are coming in at their profession, their pensions are much lower. So the incentive to stay in that agency is not there because there's no real financial reward. Now, you know, the the other side of that argument is young people want pension portability and they want to be able to take like a 401k and move it from one profession to the other, which which is fine. But that does not that does not help the law enforcement profession. If we were to offer very good substantial pension benefits to people entering the profession, and those folks knowing that they cannot reap those rewards unless they spend 20 or plus years in that agency, that in itself will act as a, re, as, as a retention um, bonus benefit to keep that, um, keep that officer you know, in the agency.
0: Yeah. You know, I want to, I really do want to come back to this. I want to, I want to talk about the incentives. I want to talk about what the, those 80 individuals came together and identified as key issues uh, to move forward. Um, I want to, I want to dig into that, but before we do, I want to go back to the whole retention piece Uh, and, and, and the recruiting problem. Uh, You know, when I was in college, I did a, I did a, a a paper and uh, survey. Now, it's, it's a little dated, and it's quite a few years ago, but I would venture to argue with you that the, uh, the statistics have not changed. 84% of the people that I surveyed, I had a, a, well over 1,000 people participated in this survey. And one of the questions I asked was, is how did they get into law enforcement? Uh, and 84% recognized that they got into law enforcement because somebody in law enforcement recognized the quality that they had and encouraged them to apply. And and come to work in his profession, and you know you you mentioned two things that are important for for workers. I, I would venture to i you know, I say I have two. One of them matches. The second one, um, I think, is interchangeable. But uh, I think every employee, regardless of where they're working, has two things that they want. They want to know that what they're doing is important. It has value. And the second thing is they want to know they're appreciated in doing that. So I think when you look at law enforcement officers across this country, I think they check the box on the first one. We know what we're doing is important. Maybe not everyone sees that, but I can tell you without a doubt, uh, I don't believe everything you see in the media, the general public poll after poll after poll supports law enforcement. I think the second part of this is there's enough noise out there that makes people in our profession feel like they're not appreciated in cities across this country. The places where they are appreciated are not dealing with crisis, the crisis of, of staffing to the levels of places where it almost seems like there's an adversarial relationship. So I I say it starts and ends with retention. It really does. If the very people that we're asking, 84 percent responsible for bringing in the next wave of law enforcement, if they're not excited about the job, and if they they're not if they don't feel good and feel valued what they're doing, they're not encouraging other people to do that and to take this job. In lies our problem, the greater problem. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, you know, it's 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 almost like. It, it's, it's almost like our country has taken for granted so many of the um, great opportunities and benefits that, that, that we as a society provide, right? Public safety, um, uh, good education systems, um, uh, a, a government, you know, whether you agree with everything that government does, it is a structure, it is a system that we all work under. And, and I think society's taken all these things so much for granted and it you know and it started you know right after uh, the, the tragic death of George Floyd and the defund police movement. Um, but what it did is it it convinced politicians that law enforcement was no longer an integral part of government and that we were more of the problem than a solution. and so, because of that, right, they started cutting back on, on, um, on, on monies to provide for law enforcement. And, you know, and then there was that ripple effect. Uh, Yes, we, we were sending those messages that, you know, you're not appreciated. We don't, we don't respect what you're doing. You know, even though we've created all these laws, and we've, and we've mandated that you, the law enforcement officer, enforce those laws, when you do enforce them, we are going to come out and attack you and, and and potentially put you in jail for doing exactly what we've asked you to do. So there's this all this confusion out there of what's going on as far as um, of, of, you know, the value of law enforcement. And then, unfortunately, you know, we have we have leaders, um, chiefs, sheriffs, you know, that are beholden to the government that hired them correct more so chiefs than sheriffs because sheriffs are elected but again um you know you've got a lot of a lot of um you know high profile leaders that are being brought into these cities to either you know fix the problem correct this perceived problem whatever and and so they've just exasperated the problem because not only now do we have the politic and it's changing a little bit, but we had not only do we have the politicians coming out and attacking us, but then our own hired um, law enforcement executives were doing the same thing. They were coming into their police agencies and saying, yeah, you guys have been doing it all wrong all these years and we need to change everything that you're doing. And oh, by the way, you know, um, uh, if you do mess up, you know, it's, it, it, you know, terror. I I, I, ne- I never forget the old chief of police in uh, in uh, Chicago. Um, um, I can't think of his name though. Sorry, um, but there was a chief. There was a chief of police in Chicago that he, his comments to his men and women were, "If you mess up, you fess up, and then we'll we'll deal with it." And that whole attitude, that whole progressive attitude of executive management has changed over the years. And now it's if you if you fess up or you mess up, you're out. And if you're not out, you're going to be going to jail. And we're the ones the executives are going to be the ones that are going to be putting you there. So how does someone come to work every day with with that type of management attitude to work under?
0: Yeah, I think uh, so. Let me just clarify that uh, that is a, a very real issue in this country. It doesn't affect every agency. It affects those agencies that have created this adversarial relationship in, in contrast those that everyone's working together towards a common goal because we all want the same thing when we work with that common goal and it to, to an end to a means means to an end we don't have all these problems they're not everywhere they're just they really uh you know just it depends on where you are in the relationship with your public officials i think uh i, I guess the best way i can kind of capsulize which, which you're, you know, and put it in a few words, what you're saying is, is, you know, we're all hired to do a job. You know, if I was in, if you hired me to paint a house, then I'm going to paint a house. You teach me how you want me to paint the house. I'm going to, te- I'm going to paint it the way you want to paint it painted. In law enforcement, we were recruited. We were given psych evaluations. We were given everything we needed to come into this profession. Uh, physical assessments. We, we went to academies. They trained us what to do. They, tra- they taught us, uh, the rule of law. They taught us criminal procedure. They taught us all of these things. They gave us responsibilities to do. They told us to go out in the community and do these things and police the communities and make the arrests based off of laws that were passed and and do all of these things. I think there's an expectation and when we do exactly what you've asked us to do, there should be support from the very people who asked you to do it and empowered you to be able to do it. And that's where, that's really where our problem is in a lot of cities across this country. And unfortunately, you know, I, I preface this by saying that, uh, that when you look at agencies who truly do work together, they're not dealing with these same problems. That doesn't mean they're immune to it, because the damage that's being done by those that have those adversarial relationships and demonize their law enforcement within their communities, that has a that has an overlapping effect to really every agency in this country and our ability to to have the best and the brightest say, you know what, let me move into, you know, I've got have got a servant heart. Let me move into to public safety and let me be a law enforcement officer where I can make a meaningful difference. At the same time, they have to weigh the things they see on the news and they see on TV and they see portrayed in movies or whether or not this is really the profession they want. All of this demonization by everyone towards law enforcement is having a lasting effect and impact on our ability to recruit and and retain retention, regardless of where you live in this country.
1: Well, sure. you know, and let's let's look at the, the 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 society we live in, right? We're we're a society of laws. We're governed, we're governed by people that we elect to represent us. And unfortunately, you know, those elected officials were hearing from their constituents negative attitudes towards law enforcement. And so you know, they want to get reelected, right? So they're going to cater to the information that they're receiving from their constituents. Now, I'm not saying that that's the majority of society that feels this way. This was just a, a small, vocal minority. However, they were the ones that were influencing our political, uh, our political leaders because they were speaking the loudest and they were getting the most attention. And what we really need to do is encourage the rest of the country, the rest of society, that it is now time for the silent majority, those folks that just go to work every day and and really don't have these axes to grind, but they need to step up. They need to reach out to their political leaders and say, if nothing else, look, I don't agree with what is going on in today's society. We need to have, we need to bring back law and order. And we've seen it. You know, we see it across the country. The crime rates are, are skyrocketing. Uh, social media is is driving uh, flash mobs at different events. I just we just had one in Illinois. They had to shut down a carnival because 400 young people in a flash mob just appeared um, and and caused mayhem. You know, we've got to get control back in of our society, and we're not going to do that unless. You know, the average citizen steps up and says, Look, enough is enough. We need we need to cure some of these problems that we're facing. And and the only way we're going to do that is by supporting our law enforcement officers.
0: Yeah. Uh no question. No question. Keith, let's let's talk about that, uh, about that meeting we had, that round table where we brought in 80 leaders across this country and get that rank and file perspective. Uh, we kind of put things in categories uh, of weights, of weight. What's the most important? Of all of them, um, I don't think we really found anything surprising. And if I, if my takeaway is probably the most important is, is of the 80 people that were there are representing tens of thousands of law enforcement officers across this country. Probably one of the greatest things that they wanted is we want leadership. We want strong leaders. We want leaders that recognize what's important uh, and, 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 and support their officers when they do the right thing and hold us accountable when we not don't, no, no one's suggesting uh, that law enforcement officers are above the law, not, not, not at all. But when we do do the job that we were hired to do, and we do it in a way that based off of policies and procedures we are getting, it needs to be some support from the agencies that we have. So, um, one of them was, uh, was clearly strong leadership. Why don't, why don't you go ahead and go down a list of, of what, what was, was anything that you didn't expect from this group discussion. And let's talk about what that finished product was.
1: Well, so yeah. Actually, what was so it which was so much surprising was the fact that you had rank and file labor many labor people at this meeting. And what were they saying? We want better leadership, we want management to take better care of what's going on. It's usually totally the opposite right yes, so absolutely. if 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 the unions if if the rank and file the associations if they're recognizing a void in leadership you know that is very telling now how did it occur we know how it occurred we lost you know 20% of our workforce those people that left the workforce were all senior uh, senior officers many of them had um, uh command rank and they they left along with everyone else so you know i don't want to play the blame game here because it's it doesn't get us anywhere um if if we have poor leadership it's because we have not trained them we have not mentored them we not have we've not brought them along and you know back in the day um you, you know there was this, a succession process right so you know you would make sergeant you might have be a sergeant for five or six years then you'd make lieutenant you'd be a lieutenant for five or six years. And then you'd make, you know, you'd keep going up the rank and you were always working under someone who had more experience and more knowledge than you. And you were able to learn as you progressed in the organization. That's not happening today. We're having officers with two years on the on the job getting promoted to sergeant. And, and then, a, you know, six months later, they're, they're now a lieutenant and they don't have that institutional knowledge that was that, that their predecessors were um, allowed to have. So, you know, I think what we really, you know, FOP and, and IACP and the Sheriff's Association, you know, we really need to put our heads together and say, okay, look, how are we going to um, create the next wave of uh, professional executive management in law enforcement? Yeah,
0: yeah, uh, great, great points. Um, some of the other things too. Let's uh, let, let's let's kind of go through them a little bit. I, one thing that I think we need to put out there is we had a great deal of discussion about lowering of standards, and uh, you know, so there's two parts to this. There's lowering of standards having to do with moral. Uh, Others have to do it with, uh, with maybe dress or tattoos. Let's separate these two things altogether because one of them, one of them, you know, we just need to decide whether or not uh, it's it's such a hindrance that uh, we don't, you know, that, that we're willing to let good qualified candidates go away. People who might be some of the most impactful within your agency, but, but one thing we need to make very clear, no one, anyone suggesting that we should lower standards on hiring of law enforcement officers, really is, is just creating a bigger problem. Uh, all we're doing is kicking a can down the road, bringing more people in and we're going to deal with all of those. I've always said, you know, and, and we, we, have 367,000 members and unlike agencies across this country, uh, chiefs that, that head these agencies, I've never had the opportunity to pick a single person who was a member of this organization and were picked by chiefs and sheriffs and administrators. So it is important to all of us. We all have a vested interest to make sure that we only have the best here because Cause we had, we're duty bound to represent as a, as a labor organization, people that we didn't hire. Uh, so let's immediately, you know, make that very, very clear. No one, at least on a fraternal law police side has suggested that we should do anything to lower standards. However, there was a great deal of discussion about what's really important. I mean, we're allowing people who otherwise might be perfect fits for our profession to come in and be part of this. But, but we're using some standards that are probably 30, 40 years old, and nobody wants to back away from them uh, in terms of whether it's tattoos or whether you know, s- some, of, you know some of the things that, that, that are part of the screening process of bringing people into this profession. Um, and in addition to that, when we start looking at someone and bringing them into this profession, well, you know, they're not just sitting around waiting for a job. They're looking for a job. And when we take six months to complete a process before we even offer a job, well, we're losing some really good people. Let's talk a little bit about that and your views on, on that aspect, you know, about, uh, you know, not lowering standards, but recognizing that it's some of the criteria we use, you know, look, not everybody can, is fast runner. Not everybody can run a mile in a certain amount of time. Are we losing people that could be extremely good law enforcement officers just because they couldn't finish a certain timeline on a mile?
1: well and, and 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 pat you and i were there uh, uh, when we were at the uh, bureau of justice assistance meeting again addressing the same issues that we that we're talking about here recruitment and retention and you know it was perfectly clear we all said we all admitted you know the last time any of us ran a mile was that you know, before we got hired on the department to pass our agility test. And after that, you know, very rarely were you, you know, tasked with running a mile. Now, sure, you might have, you know, you might have had to jump out of the car and run a block or so. But, you know, uh, that. so those requirements, yes, you're right. They're very antiquated. You know, one of the terms that really um, struck me during our our, our roundtable was, um was the requirement of moral fitness, and I, you know, I never heard that term before. I mean, I've heard it in different aspects, but um, the actual term, moral fitness. We need recruits to be coming into our profession that have moral fitness, integrity, high character. What you're seeing when more of the, in some of the more progressive agencies, in their hiring processes is that is exactly what they're doing. They're looking for those people that already have that moral compass coming in. Because what, what chiefs and sheriffs will admit is we can train the rest of that stuff. You know, we can train someone on, on the mechanics of law enforcement, but it's very difficult to inject into an individual moral character if they don't have it. So that should be, you know, again, primary uh, number one, you know, coming in the door.
0: Yeah, Keith. We too. You know, and another another one of the factors that uh, I guess surprised not not necessarily surprising, but but a factor that was recognized by those eighty leaders is the need for equipment and proper equipment. Um, they put it very very high, in, in in a lot of cases, higher than most of the things on this list. Uh, you look at a well equipped agency that takes care of their their, their employees and gives them the tools necessary to do the job. It speaks a lot about the agency itself. And I'm going to tell you a thing that, uh, that I, I think I found, and I think we, we probably all do. We recognize that there is no path of fixing recruiting and retention in this country that is not going to cost money. Uh, and that's the reality of it. But the interesting thing was, is you would think, you know, you got to give us higher pay if you want us to come work for you. And in reality pay, although pay was extremely important, it was overshadowed by a whole bunch, a whole bunch of other things: leadership, equipment. You know, it wasn't necessarily the number one that you would think. You got to pay me if you want me to do this job. It really had to do. It was probably second, third on the list. Wouldn't you agree?
1: No, I would. And you're, you know, um, you're right. Now, you know, you know, being involved in the profession over forty years, you know, I've seen, I've seen some trends, right. And, you know, for for a long time when I was at the collective bargaining table, uh, you know, I was seeing the, uh, the the management folks almost like shame the, the 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 officers into, you know, you have it too good. Um, you, you're making too much money. Your benefits are too good. You know, and but over time, what we've seen is a, is a degradation in that where we don't have the wages, we don't have the pension systems. But not only that, like you said, the the, the equipment, you know, we have, I, I, you know, I, I can't recall the agency, but I do, you know, I, I do a lot of research on, on this subject, but there was an agency that hadn't received, they haven't purchased a new police car in six years. Now, as we know, those vehicles are driven 24 by seven. You know, it's, they don't, most agencies don't have the luxury to give an officer, you know, a car, right? Uh, it's shared amongst the shifts. But even if that officer had that car for six years, can you imagine the amount of miles and the amount of wear on those vehicles? And yet, you know, we were expecting these officers to come to work every day and get into this, you know, less than safe vehicle, Um you know, because for whatever reason, they couldn't afford they couldn't afford the equipment. So, yeah, I mean, that was a that was a that was a big benefit. There was a state agency that that came up um, and I, I won't mention their name, but um, the, the, that state police department hadn't gotten a raise for five years. And my and during this whole controversy over defunding and my question to the officers were, well, then how in the heck do you keep anybody working there? You haven't had a raise in five years. And the response was they get a brand new car every year. And, and, and again, I mean, you know, different strokes for different folks. If a 10 year officer on the street, you know, he wants, he wants his wages. He wants to be able to feed his family. But when young people are coming into a profession, they want more than money, right? They want, they, as we've said, they want to be valued. They want to have good equipment. They want to have equipment that they can rely on that, you know, that, if they have to use it, they're going to be able to use it and it's not going to fail them. So it's, the, you know, these intrinsic things are very important to people coming into the profession.
0: Yeah. So Keith, any, any of the, uh, you know, so this, this, uh, you know, you can go to our website, you can get a copy of the paper, our position paper on recruiting and retention. Uh, and and uh, we'll, you know, make the link available here as well. But uh, anything of this process, Any of our discussion during this process, it really stands out to you uh, that uh, that you say, "Okay, you know, um, I learned something here. Here's something uh, a little out of uh, a lot of what what I anticipated uh, this whole process with the 80 leaders uh, on this roundtable discussion.
1: You know, I'll I'll tell you uh, the progressiveness. What was impressive to me was the progressiveness of um, the leaders that we had and 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 you know some of the uh some of the leadership that we had in our meeting were pre-seasoned i mean they had been around for a while yeah. they had been in the profession 25 30 years and yet they were bringing uh they were bringing up issues that were that are very cognizant to what's going on in today's world if, you know for example the the use of uh of uh, uh, marijuana, THC. You know, half of the states in this country are legalizing it, right? And yet we are villainizing officers for using it as civilians. We're, you know, we're refusing to hire him now because of you know what was perceived as legal usage. You know, in the state that they lived in, and you know we've got leaders that are saying, you know, we need to start thinking out of the box here. And you know, th- this this whole controversy in our country over uh, over the use of marijuana is is. You know, it's it, it's 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 you know pushing an entire generation away uh, away from a good potential uh, employment yeah. opportunity
0: for, for for at least for, for the upcoming generation. Uh, yes. it, that thinking is not sustainable. Right. I mean, and- it's a different a different day, different time. And if you're going to use it as a, dis- as a disqualifier, I'm not I'm not suggesting that it's right or wrong. I'm just simply saying it's just not sustainable. Uh, uh, America's attitude towards marijuana has changed, but law enforcement's perspective and a lot of
1: agencies has not. That's what was it was really enlightening is because we had, you know, in, in my in, in, in my observation, very traditional leaders there that were saying that were really thinking out of the box. And it wasn't just with the use, you know, the, the, the use of, uh, of marijuana, but um, just the, the different thing, you know, the, the body tattoos, the body art, that sort of thing. You know, a lot of them are saying, you know what, those are those are restrictions that we just need to put aside because society has changed and we have to change with that society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess everything in moderation. Yeah. You know, if it's not a distraction, then it shouldn't be a shouldn't be a hindrance. Um, so everything in moderation and Keith, one thing I, I'm going to tell you that I took away from, from this, you know, and a little bit of frustration trying to facilitate this meeting, but you had a very diverse group there. You had big cities, you had cities, uh, big cities that were struggling. Some that it was still had that adversarial relationship and hadn't hit rock bottom yet. Their crime's out of control. Uh, and they just, uh, it's hard. It was hard for them to see a path forward. So when we started talking about ways to improve recruiting and retention, we really spent a lot of time in the weeds from a lot of frustrated leaders because they couldn't see that there was a path because they were still stuck in a ditch. While you had others from really large agencies that, that had all of those components that were necessary to have quality of life within their communities, everybody working together. And the the clash between the two of those sharing what they were able to accomplish with those that are just struggling. They can't, they just can't see that far because they're, they're still caught in that rut. That's, that's the, uh, that was the one contrast that I saw. I, I guess, you know, my anticipation is when we brought these 80 leaders together, I asked them to put the path that brought us here behind us. I asked them to let me be. Let me speak for it. And I kind of outlined a little bit. It brought us to this place now. I said, okay, let that be how we got here. Now the question is, how do we move forward? But we, we really spent a great deal of time of a number of really major cities across this country that just have not recognize that the deterioration of their cities, the out of, out of, uh, out of control crime is directly related to, to the way that they're treating their law enforcement officers and in essence, affecting recruiting and retention.
1: Well, what I, what I had sensed, and I still sense it today is a total, um, uh, frustration on the part of many of our leaders, especially those that are in the big cities, you know, where. Um, they're, they don't have the luxury to, you know, call up the chief and say, look, let's have a cup of coffee and let's work this problem out. You know, these battles uh, between labor and management in a lot of these large cities, you know, you know, are on national news. And you've got, you know, you've got a mayor, you've got a governor coming out, um, you know, taking one position. You've got the union representative, the employee representative, you know, you know, trying to do best by uh, the members that they represent, and you know what you find out is just that they're frustrated because they're not they're not being listened to, and I think that's what frustrates them the most is that you know um, there's this disconnect, right? We have we have the you know high level, high powered politicians who you know, um, for whatever reasons, want to run, you know, think their city should be run a specific way. And then you've got your your, your rank and file and your union leaders that are saying they're seeing something con- completely different. And they're the ones with the boots on the ground. They're the ones that are talking their, to their members, their men and women in law enforcement, day in and day out. And all they're looking for is an avenue, you know, to, to take those concerns to management, to the people that need to, to to hear these things. And those folks aren't listening. And, you know, whose fault is it? I, you know, I don't know. You, you know, as conflict goes, you get to a certain point where both sides stop talking to one another. They stop listening to one another. They just talk past one another. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of places in this country that are, that are operating like that. And, you know, People need people need to to bring their um, you know their their expectations back into reality and say look you know whether we like it or not we need to sit down we need to talk this out um, we need to come to some you know mutual solutions that we can all live with.
0: Yeah, Keith, uh, you, know, it, it, you you look at these many challenges that we have, and and. And I'll tell you this, I, and it's obvious to me, we, we look at this progression over the last, uh, two and a half, three years have brought us to, to where we are. I think the reality is, is those who are working together, those who are having those discussions, I'm going to tell you right now, no one knows law enforcement better than the people who walk the streets every day. Um, and you can have your academics that study all the book stuff they want. You can have the administrators that sit back and say, I run a big agencies and I got all these titles behind my name. But in reality, those people that are walking the street every day, have a insight. That if you don't incorporate it into what your thinking process is, it's a flawed process. But, but, but I, I think when you look at the bigger, bigger picture of how we got here, I'm going to tell you that uh, the reality is and, and the reason why it's still around in a lot of cities across this country is because um, there are people that are benefiting from the problem, not a solution. Uh, so until we all get on the same page and say, you know what, we all have a common goal. Our common goal is we want safe, quality of life communities, and we all want to be part of that equation. Until we all agree that, that work is something we're going to work on together collectively and listen to each, what each one of them has to say, we're never going to fix this problem. There are people that are benefiting from the problem who absolutely do not want a solution. Uh, and until that mindset changes, we're going to see crime out of control. We're going to see cities that are struggling. We're going to see the very communities that we claim supposedly that we're helping him, but reality, they're the ones that are suffering the most because businesses are leaving the drugstores, grocery stores. They're leaving because it's not sustainable. It's not safe. Something's got to give across this country. And all we have to do is just look at tales of two cities, look at cities that truly understand it. We're all working together towards a common goal. And those that just haven't reached rock bottom yet.
1: And and, and I'll tell you, I have, I have networked with those cities, those cities that really do work together. You know, um, the FOP has put together an apprenticeship initiative and we've been, you know, um, we've been exploring, you know, the different uh, possibilities with that. And, you know, it's enlightening when I get a call from a union leader or even, or an FOP leader, they don't have, a lot of our places aren't total union, right? They're so they're, they're meet and confer type of organizations, but there are, there are FOP leaders. And I'll get a call from that FOP leader and said, and says, Hey, you know what? Um, I talked to the chief about this apprenticeship program. Um, can you get on a call with us? Can you get on a call with us to discuss yes. this? Can you give us the, that? That is where we're finding the, the best solutions. And you know what? Whether we actually institute the uh, apprenticeship program in that agency or not really doesn't matter. What is so impressive is that you have these individuals on both sides of the aisle, you know, labor and management, working towards solutions and communicating, communicating.
0: So, Keith, all, all this is pretty work intense. We we you know we've we've covered a lot of ground, we've pulled a lot of information together, and put together a really good document uh, that kind of outlines the 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 uh, rank and file perspective of law enforcement and, and it's actually by law enforcement. So those 80 leaders came in and helped us be part of the part of drafting this document. But, uh, but it's also our staff. Uh, we've got, uh, we've got uh, a really dynamic uh, group of individuals that are dedicated to the advancement of the law enforcement profession working for us. And uh, we none of this would be possible if it wasn't for their hard work as well.
1: Oh yeah. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Mark um, McDonald worked. You know, w- put in a lot of hours putting the survey together, compiling all the statistics, uh, and and him and Tim uh, Richardson, um, our, our, our senior le- legislative liaison, um, you know, sat through all these meetings, took copious notes, and really, you know, put the fi- put this put this beautiful document together that we're all referencing today.
0: Yep. You add to that, our, our executive director, and I know really all our staff, the interaction we have with uh, branches of government and other organizations that express the same concerns that we do. Um, any final thoughts before
1: we wrap this up? Well, the only, you know, we touched a little bit on the recruiting process and, you know, how long it takes. And again, in in, in the, some of the research that I have done, the the agencies that can do a quick turnaround on attracting an, an individual, for example, you apply on one day, the next day you're interviewed, and the third day you're offered a job. Those are the ones that are successfully bringing people into the profession. And you know, also in our research that we've done with the apprenticeship program, uh, you know, working with the United with the U.S. Department of Labor, working with the Department of Justice, you know, try, We we have a mechanism in place right now where we can institute an apprenticeship program anywhere in the United States. What what it's going to take is a cooperation between both sides, the FOP and management, to make make it happen. But we've got that blueprint already in place, and, and all we need to do is get some partners out there and some funding to make it happen.
0: And Keith, and I think it's, this is a good time to, to recognize that, uh, that we're not the only ones who recognize this problem. Uh, organizations across this country, law enforcement organizations, recognize the struggles that are happening with recruiting and retention. Uh, but but it, it, it's I have to say that uh, our working relationship on this issue with the Department of Justice, with the Attorney General, Assistant Attorney General, Associate Attorney General, uh, Department of Homeland Security and Department of Labor have been great. They recognize the challenge here, and uh, we're all collectively trying to find uh, some solutions to this very real problem. So Keith Turney, National so- National Sergeant at Arms. Keith, thank you for joining us. Thank you for all you do. And to our viewers back home, uh, thank you for tuning in to the Blue View podcast, where, where we talk about the issues that are so vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up every day in communities across America and make a difference. Thank you. Be
1: sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else to get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.